You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome again to Whitefields Community Church. So glad that you're with us. Great to see your faces. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. If you use your phone for the Bible, you can use the, if you use that version Bible app and you log in and go into the, the menu and all that, you can find the events and you can follow along with all the notes on the screen. You can take notes, share with people as well. So that's a cool way for you to follow along. One big announcement for us. We do an annual outreach here at Whitefields called Project Back to School. And we weren't sure if that was going to continue this year, uh, but we are going to move forward. We got word from Weld County that we can move forward. So let me just explain what this is very briefly. Uh, Project Back to School is our outreach to the local foster and kinship care community, which means kids who've been removed from their homes because the situation there is not good for them. They've been placed in foster homes or with relatives. And uh, we work with Weld County Human Services to hook us up with these kids, and we provide for them school supplies every July. So when August comes, they're ready to go to school. Now, what this does, the reason this is so, so important is because one of the big correlators with, with poverty and kind of cycles of poverty is uh, dropping out of school. So what we want to do is we want to help kids be encouraged to finish school because they got supplies, they got clothes, they're happy to go, they've got what they need. And so as we can encourage them to do that, we hope that God would use us to help break some cycles of poverty in the long term. It's a way that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in a really practical way here in our local community. So here's how you can get involved. Go to our website, whitefieldschurch.com. You can even do it while you're sitting here. Whitefieldschurch.com. Scroll down to the blog section, and there is a post about Project Back to School. Click on that. It's all online this year. All the signups are online. If you click on that, you can sign up to, to provide a backpack for a kid. We're aiming to provide 135 children with school supplies this year in Weld County. 135. We really believe that God's going to provide for it, and so we'd love for you to be involved. Click on that. There'll be a list of school supplies, and uh, by the end of August, we ask that you return them here to the church. For those of you watching online, you can return them here during the week as well. You'll return those backpacks to school. We'll get them into the hands of the kids who are in need. Okay, so that's Project Back to School. Check that out at whitefieldschurch.com, and that'll be going on for the whole month of July. We're currently in a series called Desiring the Kingdom. We're looking at the books of First and Second Kings, and as we see the failings of those human kings, it points us to the glory of Jesus and our desire for the true king and his kingdom are stirred up as we look at these kings and kingdoms. One of the things we like to do at Whitefields, we like to study through whole books of the Bible. That's the way God gave us his word, and it's the way that we believe we best receive from it is by going through an entire book of the scriptures. So that's what we're doing here in First and Second Kings. And today we are going to begin looking at one of the greatest figures in all of the Bible, one of the giants of the scriptures. His name is Elijah the prophet. So please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we begin our study. Heavenly Father, we turn our attention now to your word. We ask that you would speak to us through it. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that receive your word and believe it and put it into practice. Lord, we ask that you would work in our lives through your word Lord, we pray that you would do a work of, maybe in some of our lives, Lord, you need to do a work of correction. Maybe in some of our lives, we need a work of encouragement. Lord, you know where we're at this morning. I pray that you'd meet us in that place and minister to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, how many of you have ever 
thought about or wondered, does God have a calling on my life? You know, a calling, right? Like a purpose that God intends for you to fulfill in your life, or maybe something that God wants you to do in your life. Does God have a calling for your life? And if so, what is it? And how can you know? How can you be sure of what it is? How can you know whether you're doing it or not? Those are some really important questions. And in fact, those are maybe some of the most important questions you'll ever ask in your life. The good news is that discovering God's will and God's calling for your life may not be as hard as you might think, because the Bible has a ton to say on this topic of God's will and God's calling on your life. But see, sometimes it isn't that we don't know what God's calling us to do. Sometimes, even though we may know, maybe there's something that's holding you back from doing it, holding you back from stepping into it in faith. Well, here in 1 Kings chapter 17, here's what we're going to see. As the prophet Elijah confronts the evil king Ahab, we're going to see a pattern of God's faithfulness when we respond to his call. What we've been doing these last couple weeks, we take a sentence like that. I want you to memorize that, write it down. Then when somebody asks you later today, hey, what'd they talk about at church? You're going to say, as the prophet Elijah confronted the evil king Ahab, we saw a pattern of God's faithfulness when we respond to his call. That's going to be our outline by which we're going to study this passage, okay? The title of today's message is, A Dry Brook and a full jar, a dry brook and a full jar. So let's take that sentence, break it down, and study this passage. So let's look at this. As the prophet Elijah confronts the evil king Ahab, look at what it says in verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is the first time in the Bible that we meet the prophet Elijah. Who is prophet Elijah? He just bursts on the scene. No introduction. We've never heard of him before. Boom, he just shows up. Who was he? Well, here's what we know. The prophets of Israel played a very important role in the life of Israel at this time. They were the pastors of the people who spoke the word of God into their lives, into their situations. They were the moral compass and the, the spiritual compass for the nation that always pointed to true north. When the people got off course, when they walked away from God's ways, the prophets were always there to call them back, call them back to God, call them back to God's ways. Now that's different than the priests, right? So the priests of Israel, their job was in the temple. They were focused on presenting sacrifices, carrying out rituals, maintaining the temple. But the prophets... They were the mouthpieces of God. They were the ones through whom God would speak to the people. So Elijah comes on the scene as a mouthpiece for God, and he tells King Ahab that it's not going to rain again until he says so. Now, why would he say that? Well, to understand that, you have to understand who King Ahab was. So let's talk about that. Who was King Ahab? King Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, when you walked in today, you got a cheat sheet. We made this for you. It's got a map on one side. It's got some bullet points on the other side. This cheat sheet is here to help you over the next several weeks because here in 1 Kings, it can be a little confusing if you, if you don't know the story because it's going to switch back and forth, right? The kingdom of Israel has now been divided into two kingdoms. Right, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. They have, now their history diverges, and it's really important to keep track because in 1 Kings, it's going to switch back and forth between the kings of, of Judah and the kings of Israel. Now, listen, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, 
That's where Jerusalem was located. And Judah had a mix of some good kings and some bad kings. But the northern kingdom of Israel, that's where Ahab is, they had only bad kings, zero good kings, not a single one. Now, you might ask, how do you judge what's a good king and what's a bad king? Well, God had one metric. This was the metric. Did the king lead people to God or did they lead them away from God? Did they lead people towards God or away from God? That was the metric of good or bad kings. Now, in 1 Kings chapters 15 and 16, we read about some of the kings of the two kingdoms. And I want to bring your attention to one of the kings in chapter 15. He was a man named Asa. He was a king in Judah. That's the southern kingdom. And Asa was a good king. It says in uh, 1 Kings 15, verse 11, that Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. It tells us what he did. He got rid of the pagan altars. He got rid of the pagan worship. He destroyed the idols that his father had made. If you read there, it says he even fired his own mother from the government of Israel because she was involved in pagan worship. And then he took his, her idol and burned it, right? Like, how gangster is that? Like, take that, mom, right? <laughs> There's your idol. Just watch it burn, okay? So verse, uh, then in, in chapters 15 and 16, we also see six kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, right? The bad kings. They were all bad. Six bad kings. Each of them were bad, but there was one that was badder than all the other bad kings, and his name was Ahab. It says in 16 verse 30, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Okay, Ahab, he's like next level bad. He's like super villain bad. He's like other bad people look at him and they're like, I don't know, that's a little bit too much, right? He's way bad. And it tells us what he did that was so bad. Chapter 16, verse 31, it says, He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshiped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Okay, who is Baal? Let's talk about that. Baal was the god of the Sidonians, and he was thought to be in control of the weather. He was like the sky god. So in a lot of the depictions of Baal from, you know, carvings and things like this that the archaeologists find, they see him with a lightning rod in his hands because he was thought to be the god of weather. And most importantly, that meant that he was the god of rain. Now, you ought to understand, in that climate, very much like ours, rain is very important, especially if you're a farmer. Right? You need rain in order for your crops to grow. You need crops not only to have something to eat, but in order to have something to sell. Right? So this is your livelihood depends on rain. So understand this, that really the worship of Baal, why would someone worship Baal? Because they believe that if they did, if they could appease Baal, they would be prosperous and comfortable. They would have success, wealth, money, and security. Right? So one way that Baal was worshipped was through the offering of child sacrifices. Child sacrifices. People would literally take their children, their babies, their toddlers, and they would sacrifice them on an altar to Baal because they believed that if they did so, Baal would reward them with prosperity and success. Understand this, guys. People were literally sacrificing their children on the altar of success. 
The sacrificing of children, of innocent children, was something that God looked at and he said, that is an abomination. An abomination is something which is so vile, so horrible, that it doesn't only make God sick, it actually makes God angry. It actually says that. Look at this, 16 verse 33. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. See, Ahab not only worshipped Baal, he tried to eradicate the worship of the, the knowledge and the worship of the true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. He tried to eradicate it from the face of the earth there in Israel. And he tried to make the worship of Baal the official state religion. He persecuted anyone who followed Yahweh. It says also in 1 Kings 16.34 that in Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. Do you guys remember Jericho, right? They march around the city seven days. They shout, they blow the trumpets, the walls fall down, the city's destroyed. Okay, well, look, in Ahab's time, he actually ordered somebody to rebuild Jericho. And he says he laid its foundation at the cost of Ebiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, son of Nun. Here's what this means. Ahab ordered the city of Jericho to be rebuilt, and when they rebuilt it, they dedicated the city to Baal by sacrificing two children, one for its walls, one for its gates. Now, beyond the child sacrifice, this was also bad for other reasons. First of all, in the book of Joshua, Jericho, after Jericho is destroyed, God commanded that it should never be rebuilt. In other words, Ahab is doing this in defiance of God's direct command. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, the city of Jericho is located, check your map, it's located where? In the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahab's the king in the north. What's he doing in the southern kingdom? What this tells us is Ahab wasn't only worshiping Baal, he was an evangelist for Baal. He's out there trying to export the worship of Baal to the southern kingdom and get more people worshiping Baal and sacrificing their children to this God. And it was into this wicked, evil situation that Elijah boldly shows up and he confronts the evil king Ahab. You know what Elijah's name means? It means Yahweh is God. What an, what an appropriate name for someone who, who this is his calling in life, right? Is to show up and say, Baal is not God. Yahweh is God. And, and remember, Baal was thought to control the weather and particularly the rain. So when Elijah shows up and he says, it's not going to rain again until I say so. That's poking Baal in the eye, man. It is a direct challenge. He is going after Baal. He's saying, look, Look, I'm going to prove to you guys that Baal, he's just a phony baloney, nothing, nonsense God who doesn't even exist at all. He has no power. Only Yahweh is God, and you should worship him. Okay, let's move on to the second part of our sentence. As the prophet Elijah confronts the evil king Ahab, what do we see? A pattern for God's faithfulness when we respond to his call. You know, something that's really interesting when you look at the book of 1 Kings is that there's another book in the Bible which actually talks about this same period in history, and that is the book of 2 Chronicles. And sometimes when you compare 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles will give you a few extra details about a person or a situation, and that's the case when it comes to King Asa. Remember, he's the good king of Judah who we just talked about a few minutes ago. And I want to point this out. Here's what it says in 2 Chronicles about Asa. It gives us a little more info on him. 
It says that when he got older, he struggled with trusting the Lord. He struggled with trusting the Lord, and he entered into some treaties which showed that Asa didn't really trust God to protect him. And God sent a prophet to Asa with a message at this time when Asa was doing this stuff and not trusting the Lord. God sent him a prophet to remind him of a very important truth. And here's what it is. Check out this verse. It's an important one. Second Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. God's message to Asa was this. Asa, if you would trust me with your whole heart, then I will show myself strong on your behalf. In other words, Asa, if you will do what God has called you to do, then you will experience God's power in your life. Let me ask you this. How many of you here today would like to experience God's power in your life? You'd like to see the evidence of God's work in your life. Do you know how that happens? Do you know when that happens? When you experience God's strength and his power in your life? Most often, it will happen when you step out and do something that God has called you to do. You step out in faith and do something that God has called you to do. That is when you will see his power and the evidence of his strength at work in your life. Guys, let me, let me point this out to you. Faith Having faith, it doesn't just mean believing that God exists. You know what faith is? Faith means trusting God enough to do what he says. Trusting God enough to do what he says. That's the essence of faith. And I want to ask you, do you have that kind of faith? Or do you desire to have that kind of faith? To trust God enough to do what he says. Well, here's the good news. God is seeking. This is what this prophecy to Asa tells us. God is seeking. He is looking for opportunities to show himself strong on behalf of those who trust him enough to do what he says. And guys, it is as you and I, as we step out in faith, as you do what God is calling you to do, that is when you will see and experience God's strength and power at work in your life. Here in 1 Kings 17, what we're going to see in the remainder of this section is an example of two people who experienced this personally. They stepped out and did what God called them to do, and they saw and experienced God's power in their lives. And the question I want you to ask as we read this test is this. What is God calling me to do? Guys, what is God calling you to do? No matter how old you are, no matter what stage of life you are in, understand this. God has a calling on your life. God has a calling on your life. Now you might ask, how can I know what it is? How can I know what God's calling on my life is? Here's the advice I would give you. Start broad and work your way narrow. Start broad and work your way narrow. Start general and work your way specific. Here's what I mean. You start with the things that the Bible already clearly states and says, this is what God wants you to do, right? Unequivocal, easy. This is what God wants you to do. That's the general. And then you move your way towards the specific as you start doing the general, right? So for example, the Bible says that God desires for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So God is calling you to embrace Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. God is calling you to trust in what he did to save you. God is calling you into a relationship with him. So that's the first, the primary uh, call of God. Okay, and then you go more specific. You go more specific. So if you're a parent, 
You have a calling on your life to raise your kids, to teach them about Jesus. If you're a spouse, a husband or a wife, you have a calling to love and serve your spouse. If you have a job, listen, understand, your job is not just what you do in order to earn a paycheck. Your job can be a calling from God to love your neighbor and do God's work in the world uh, by doing that job that you have. If you're a Christian, God has callings for you as well. God is calling you to be in a fellowship of believers, to contribute, to use your gifts, to use your resources, right? To contribute to the building up of other people and the furthering of the gospel and the making of disciples. And then beyond that, you know what? God might have some specific callings that are unique to you individually and personally. But where you start, right, you start with the general, you start with the broad, and you work your way towards the narrow and the specific. Now, I want to show you, let's look at how this story plays out, and we're going to see a pattern for God's faithfulness when we respond to his call. It says in verse 2, after Elijah delivered this message from God to King Ahab, look at what happens in verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him and said, depart from here. Turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Notice this. God is leading Elijah one step at a time. And friends, this is the way that God often leads us. God doesn't usually give you the whole road map. He doesn't usually give you the, the five-year plan and say, okay, here's all the points along the way. Oftentimes, he'll give you the very next step. And he says, do this. And after you do this, I'll show you the next step after that. Now, maybe you wish it would be different. Maybe you wish that God would just lay it all out ahead of time so you would know. Right? But God says, no, 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 I'm going to lead you one step at a time. Why? Because it will force you to be dependent on me and connected to me constantly. Think about it like this. If I tell my wife, hey, I know a place. You've got to see it. I want you to go there. Now she might say, okay, cool. Text me the address and I'll go there. Right? I'll put it in my phone and I'll go there. But right? It's a much different experience if my wife says, hey, text me the address. And I say, no, I'm not going to text you the address. Instead, I want you to take my hand and I'm going to walk you there. I'm going to walk you there. Think about how different that journey is going to be. The destination might be the same, but think about what happens during that journey. On that way, we're going to talk together. We're going to spend time. She's going to be dependent on me to show her the way. And Intimacy, guys, is created through shared experiences. This is true with other people, and it's true with God. Intimacy is created through shared experiences. And so as we're walking together, our relationship is deepening. And guys, isn't that true? So many times we just want God to text us the address where he wants us to go, right? Text me an address, and I'll get there. No, but God says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to text you the address. I'm not going to text you the destination. Rather, I want you to take my hand and walk with me, and I'm going to show you the way one step at a time. And this process of walking with God and being led by God, it builds trust, it builds faith, it builds confidence in him as you experience him leading you step by step. Okay, this place where God told Elijah to go, the brook Cherith, people who've traveled there, they tell us about this place, that it is a deep ravine in the desert with a brook flowing, flowing through it. 
Now, if you've ever seen a place like that, because we have some of that here in the western United States, right? Deep ravines with brooks flowing in them. You know what happens is that trees grow and down in the ravine, you know, there's a lot of foliage, leafy green plants because of the shade that's created by the ravine and the water. And so this is a perfect place for Elijah to hide out where other people wouldn't be able to see him or find him. He had cool from the, the sun. He had water to drink. And during this time, God is teaching Elijah. He's wanting to teach Elijah and, and us as we read the story that if you will trust in him and follow him, he will show himself strong on your behalf. Right? So God provided for Elijah in a miraculous way. In verse 6, it tells us that God sent ravens to bring Elijah bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. God, or Elijah trusted God enough to do what God told him to do. And as he did that, God provided for all of his needs. But guys, Elijah, it's not like Elijah was eating filet mignon, right? He's not living in a mansion. I mean, he's basically like a homeless guy living in a ditch, you know, eating food that's been barfed up by birds, right? Like, um, it's not like filet mignon, but he never missed a meal, did he? He never missed a meal, and God took care of him and provided for him. I'll tell you this. In my own experience, I've experienced the same dynamic over and over again. I was thinking about it last night. You know, when I was pastoring in Hungary, Rosemary and I, we were living off of donations. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't make a lot of money. And we had just had our first baby. He was a year old at this point. And there was a young guy in our church who needed help. You know, he, he was 14 years old. He had nowhere to go. He had no family. And we thought about this, you know, maybe we, could, maybe we could help him out. Maybe we could take him in. But we weren't sure. Do we even have enough money to pay our own rent? Do we have enough money to even feed ourselves, much less take care of somebody else who's got needs of his own? But we prayed about it, and we felt that God was telling us, take him in and just, just do it in faith, and somehow he's going to make ends meet. And so that's what we did. We took him in. Later on, we adopted him. And God provided everything we needed along the way. We experienced, as we stepped out and did what God called us to do, we experienced his power. We saw his faithfulness at work in our lives. And guys, I got to tell you, it causes your faith to grow. As you step out and do what he calls you to do, we never lacked having enough. Over and over in our lives, you know, when we've stepped out and done something in faith, not knowing how it would work out, but convinced that this is what God had called us to do. God has been faithful. Guys, this building we're in right now, this is the same thing, right? This is the same thing again. It was a step of faith. We did this not knowing how God's going to provide for it or what we'll do next, but we're just trusting that this is the step God is calling us to make right now so that we can fulfill, hopefully more effectively, the mission he's given us to make disciples and to spread the gospel to more and more people. And I got to say, over these past few months, we've seen how timely the move of being here has been. It was actually really great timing now in retrospect. And as a church, this is what we're doing, guys. Collectively, you and I, we are taking God's hand and we are walking with him. And he's showing us the way, step by step. It's exciting. I tell you what, sometimes it makes you sweat a little or a lot, right? But you know what? 
It raises your heart rate, but that's what makes it exciting, right? You're, you're along for the ride. The message of this, understand, the message is not, if you follow God, then he will make everything in your life easy and comfortable. No. You know what? You might end up homeless, living in a ditch, eating food that's been coughed up by birds, okay? That's what might happen. But God will be faithful, absolutely, to show himself strong on your behalf as you take his hand and walk with him one step at a time. But notice, verse 7, check this out. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, wait a second. Here's Elijah praying every day that it won't rain, doing what God told him to do. But those same prayers that are causing the drought that brings God glory against Baal are the same prayers that's causing his own resources that he depends on for life to dry up. Here he is praying that it won't rain, but as it doesn't rain, his brook is getting thinner and thinner, and he needs that brook in order to stay alive. Guys, let me tell you this. There may be times in your life when God calls you to do something, and the very act of obeying God and doing what he calls you to do, it may cause your financial resources to dry up right in front of your eyes. It may cause your popularity to dry up right in front of your eyes. And sometimes when that happens, you might start to have some doubts. Is this really what God called me to do? Right? You know, it's, things are going bad, right? Like I'm watching my bank account dry out. I'm losing all my friends. Is this really what God called me to do? You wonder if Elijah might not have been tempted to stop doing what God called him to do out of fear that he's going to run out of water to drink. And look at what it says in verse 8. It says, then Elijah died of dehydration. No, that's not what it says, does it? I caught you guys who weren't reading along, didn't I? Okay. All right, verse 8, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow to feed you. God is leading Elijah step by step, and Elijah is doing what God calls him to do. Now understand this. Zarephath is not nearby. It's 50 miles away at least from where he was staying at the brook Cherith. 50 miles. That's like a two-day walk. When you go to this town, there's going to be this lady there. She's going to take care of you. She's going to feed you. Check out what happens. It says, He arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar with a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks so I may go and prepare it for myself and my son so we may eat it and then die. Elijah makes this journey, two days, 50 miles. He arrives in this town, finally, finds this woman who God said, I'm going to provide for you through that woman, except there's one problem. This woman, she can't even provide for herself. She's so incredibly poor that she's literally about to starve to death. And not only this, not only does she have to feed Elijah, she's got a son to worry about. Kind of weird, don't you think? I mean, he must have been like, hey, are there any other widows in town? Maybe I got like the wrong widow because you seem super poor, right? And so why wouldn't God send her to a rich person? A rich person who's throwing food out all the time, right? Plenty to spare. Why not send him to a rich person who's got plenty to share? Instead, God sends Elijah to this woman who's broke and starving. And Elijah's like, hey, starving lady, 
give me all your food so I can eat it, right? That's, that's what he's saying. He says, God told me to come here and eat your food, hungry person, right? So why would God send Elijah to this woman? There's a very important reason. Because God wanted to do something in this woman's life. God could have fed Elijah uh, by himself without anybody's help. But God wants to do something in this woman's life. Notice when this woman talks to Elijah, she refers to the Lord, Elijah's God, as your God, your God. In other words, this woman's not a believer. Remember, this is in Sidon. Sidon is the place where they worship Baal. This woman's not a believer, um, and she's not a follower of Yahweh. But look at what else she says. As the Lord your God lives. In other words, she believes that Elijah's God is the true God, and yet she does not worship him and follow him herself. So God sent Elijah to this woman because God loves this woman, and God wants to call this woman into a relationship with him. So check out what Elijah does next, starting in verse 13. Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make a cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards you can make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Do you know how long that was? Three years, guys. Three years. This little oil, this little flour, it's going to last for three years. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This widow stepped out in faith and obeyed what God called her to do. And as she did, she saw God work in her life. She experienced God's faithfulness. Just imagine how her faith grew and, and her trust in God grew through this process. Every day, dipping into the jar and there always being enough. God could have provided for Elijah without anybody's help. But he wanted to do something in this woman's life. He wanted to call her into a relationship in which he would tell her to do something. She would obey in faith. And this relationship of trust and faith and obedience would grow. You know what, guys? The word obedience is not exactly the most popular word in the English language, isn't it? Yesterday was the 4th of July when we celebrate how we don't obey those dumb British, right? Like, like we, we are not big on, like, obedience. That's, like, not our favorite. Um, but when it comes to God, obedience is an act of faith. Understand, obedience is an act of faith. To obey God, to do what he says, that's an act of surrender. And what we talked about last week is that surrender is the essence of what it means to truly worship God. Surrender is the essence of true worship. You know, in my community group a few weeks ago, there was somebody who said this. They said, you know what surrender means? Surrender means going over to the winning side. I was like, boom, that's it right there. Going over to the winning side. That's what it means when you surrender to God. Guys, listen, do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to grow in your relationship with God? Do you know how it happens? It happens. That growth takes place when you surrender yourself to God and do what he calls you to do. That's exactly what happened with this widow. Just imagine the first time she, she does what God calls her to do. She's probably pretty skeptical, maybe pretty fearful that it's not going to work out. Right? She dips in, and okay, there's enough for today, but I don't know about tomorrow. 
And then after a few days of doing this, she begins to learn. She begins to see a few days, a few months, a few years. She begins to expect that every time she dips in, there will be enough because God said so, and he has always kept his word. This story is a powerful example for you and for me that God provides when we step out in faith and do what he is calling us to do. Maybe there's some of you here and God is calling you to give or to serve. And you're saying, listen, I know that God wants me to do this, but I'm already running low. I'm already running low on time, energy, resources. But listen, as long as this woman kept pouring out and doing what God called her to do, God always provided her with what she needed in order to do it. And that will be true in your life as well. So as we finish, let's just look at these last two words. His call, God's call. What is God calling you to do? Remember, start broad and work your way narrow. Start general and work your way specific. Start with those things that you know God is calling you to do. Maybe there's some of you here, and God is calling you to forgive somebody who you have been holding a grudge against. Maybe there is some habit or addiction that God is calling you to leave behind. Maybe there's something in regard to your marriage or your job that God is calling you to. Whatever the next step is that God is calling you to take, I want to encourage you that when you say yes to God, that is when you will experience his power and his work, his provision in your life in a way that causes you to grow in faith and in relationship with him. Listen, the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. Guys, God wants to show himself strong on your behalf. Listen, I know one thing for sure, that God is calling you to wholeheartedly trust in the gospel the good news of what Jesus did for you to save you. You know, speaking of, of God showing himself strong on your behalf, listen to what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says, When we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were weak, God has shown himself strong on your behalf in Jesus. When you were weak, when you had fallen short, when you were not living up and being the person that God has called you to be, Jesus was strong on your behalf. He lived the life that you should have lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. He died the death that you should have died as judgment for your sins. When you were weak, Jesus was strong on your behalf. That's the message of the gospel. And because that's true, the only reasonable response is for you and me to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. May God help us to do that as we see and as we appreciate all that he has done for us. And may God help you to do the things he is calling you to do. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.